Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Mold, episode number eight. Evan Roth here, your host, joined by Dan Roth, guest, co-host. I Dan. can't believe I'm guest co-hosting again. This is awesome. Yeah. I got invited back. I feel like every week is a tryout. Yeah. And and I, you, I don't know until an hour before you're going to tape whether I'm, I am I passed. Well, what, what you've got going for you is that you haven't left the studio since the last <laughs> podcast. You just you, – when you're sitting in the chair, it's very hard to pull you out. We've actually had a team of Teamsters come and That's try right. to rip you from the chair and you, you wouldn't go. No, these handcuffs are unbreakable. <laughs> it's crazy, which is unfortunate because I have, I have a terrible itch on my nose. <laughs> I'd love to scratch it. Here, let me come up. Come up. I'll scratch it for you, Dan. So not by default, but because we want you here, Dan – Happy to have you as co- guest co-host. Show today, we're going to spend some time with Michael Andrews of Michael Andrews Bespoke. His story, fascinating, unique in the sense that he is a corporate attorney, engineer actually before he was a corporate attorney, then went back to go get his law and his MBA degree at Northwestern, and then decided to give up the whole nice, cushy lifestyle of a white shoe corporate attorney to go start a clothing, fashion, tailor business. For men. For men. Anyone else you can think of that's done that? In our family at all? No, Anybody? Uh, no? No. Jessica? Our, our sister? No. All right. It seems like you could be a lawyer for life, but a clothier for men. An entrepreneurial, a, a startup is not the path for, uh, for not job WhatsApp. security. Right. It's no. not for, and, and yeah, and what, what is the actual gold pot at the end of the rainbow? We'll find out soon. We'll be there. First, though, Dan and I are going to spend a little time talking about the story of the day. It is a story that is on the cover of pretty much every paper, every website that focuses on news, and that is that Jill Abramson, who was editor-in-chief of New York Times, was replaced in favor of her deputy. And I think let's start with this, Dan, because we'll talk a little bit about uh, a lot of the implications of what's come out as a result of her firing, and we're going to talk about her compensation. But the first question is, the fact that this is such a big story, is this just because media is in love with itself? And should we really care that the editor-in-chief of the New York Times has been replaced? Well, let's take the first half of that question first. Absolutely, the most favorite story of the media is the media. Right. The other part of that is that no one leaks like the media. I mean, this is, you know, uh, Arthur Salzberg got up in front of the staff and said, I'm telling you what this is. There's nothing more to the story than what I'm saying, which in for a room full of journalists is just throwing red meat in. <laughs> you say there's nothing else to the story. Right. There is a million ways to go after the story. So there's constant leaks every day. There's more information. People are giving out documents. I mean, this place is a it's a it's a sieve and it's leaking good gossip and and reports. And so everyone's picking up on it. It's a total feeding frenzy. Yeah, yeah. And of course, hard for you know an outsider to look at it and say, is the New York Times doing the best job of covering itself here? Right. I mean, it's the last thing that I would actually do is read a New York Times article on this. I guess think that it would be rife for being edited in a way that makes me well, hear what I'm supposed to hear, right. not not of, you know, true good no, you know, this journalism. No, this is the time where you can really trust. This is they, – they will go after them. The, the, themselves? The, themselves. They will cannibalize themselves? Absolutely. No one's ever said that these are – that this is a business that's made to – that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and um, – 
And that's one that you want to show independence. There's a real church state line. Sometimes yeah. you, the time when you show it is this is a great time to flex that. I guess so. But the, the topic that we're talking about here is not just an editor in chief being fired. It's a female, the first, is the first editor in chief of the Times that's ever right. yep. being fired, who is one of the stories going around is that she was fired because she complained about her compensation, specifically that she complained that she was biased because she was a woman. Is the New York Times really going to cover that story? They they did. David Carr did a piece on it, and uh, it was pretty good. Now, other people have done better pieces, BuzzFeed, yeah. New Yorker. And, and by the way, bringing even BuzzFeed into this, this is one of these places that in the New York Times, they have a, they had a report, and they look at what BuzzFeed's doing. Like, we're not doing anything like what they're doing. You know, uh-huh. A startup like BuzzFeed that can that is scaring the New York Times, you know, you say maybe that this it is time to replace the editor-in-chief. If you're not even noticing these, these kind of up-and-comers that threaten to eat your lunch at some point. I guess so. And, but I also read that the president of BuzzFeed also resigned this week. Uh, let me see how many people, how many listeners knew that, right? If that, if BuzzFeed's doing the better investigative journalism, shouldn't we care as much about that as we do about the editor-in-chief? It's the New, New York, York Times. Times. It's the New York Times. Right, you care deeply about it. Yeah, okay. You do. So the question is compensation. Right. Was she unfairly treated? And then maybe let's ask it more specifically, which is everyone's got their own interpretation in the New York Times, as in most companies, of what everyone else gets gets paid. But there's not transparency into that. Right. So one of the arguments here is that she found out about it about, I think it was 18 months, two years in, and that she was getting less than Bill Keller. Again, we don't know the details. Mm-hmm. This might not be Bill true Keller, her predecessor. Her predecessor. And said, this is crazy. Why am I not getting paid as much as him, even more than he was making? And one of the – there have been, as you said, a million stories about this. Now, Felix Salmon, I think, did a really nice take. He's a former Reuters uh, columnist. Um, now he's at a place called Fusion. He did a piece uh, on LinkedIn where he said if there were transparencies about paying companies, these kind of things wouldn't happen. If everyone knew what everyone else made, that would be such a huge benefit to the culture and you would never have this kind of situation. I think that would be a complete disaster. You think for... it would be a complete disaster? Yes. There are companies that do this, that have this as their culture. Yeah. Tell me, why, why do okay, you think it Yeah, I'll tell you this, yeah. is that the idea that compensation is a determinant of people's motivation is true, but it should be a determination for people's self-motivation. They shouldn't be looking at their compensation versus someone else's compensation and determining whether they are working harder on a relative basis and deserve more compensation or there's resentment that someone else is making more than they are simply because they're in a better position for it. But that the role of a company is to be able to provide the right incentives, the right motivation for an individual to be able to achieve whatever their goals are for their work. Of course, one of those would be their financial goals. And looking at it benchmarked to the guy that's sitting to the right and to the left destroys motivation, increases resentment, and therefore has an impact on the enterprise value of the business. But that seems to be true in a situation where you don't know what everyone's making. How can you have resentment if you went into this knowing David over here makes X, Y, or Z, the chief of sales that we pay at my company, we pay salespeople way more than we pay marketers. Yeah, yeah. And here is exactly what they're all making. So you are hired. I, I think it would be a foreign thing to bring into a culture to introduce to a company. But yeah. there's a company called Buffer okay. that does social media. You can kind of schedule your tweets through them. And, mm-hmm. and they are 100% open with what everyone makes at the company. Mm-hmm. So you don't join Buffer unless you're okay with that idea. And there apparently are, they say that they get a certain culture of people that there's mm-hmm. no complaints about, hey, you know, everyone, what everyone's making. If you want to get a raise, you have to be willing to. Of course there are complaints. There's more complaints. The CEO has talked about that the, that the culture changes 
because you know exactly what you're going to make and when. And you have to be able to justify what someone if you don't think someone else is making it. You know what it takes to be able to get that higher that higher pay. I just think think about what inspires people. You know, it, it's that I think you, it's a question of human nature that ambiguity and flexibility and compensation is a motivator. That knowing that look, I can achieve a certain dollar amount if I hit X Y Z standard. Not that I'm locked into making this dollar amount. Or frankly, I think it's one of the the hard parts about working for a public company is when so much of your compensation is determined based on the stock price. You know what it is, and certainly there's a lot of transparency to public companies, especially in you know the C suite about what people make and what their what their comp is. But at the end of the day, you don't control it. What the stock does and doesn't do is a function of you know buyers and sellers in the market that's totally unrelated to you. How can I get motivated by that if it someday I'm working I'm working my tail off, I'm closing business, I'm making clients happy, and yet something else happens in the company that make the stock price decline. I know my compensation falls. I know everyone else's compensation falls. That is an incredibly frustrating experience. I don't feel like you're suddenly going to feel good about it because at least you know what the guy next to you has happened to make. Yeah, I um Dan there's no other way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine working in a company like that. No. I cannot imagine no. what that must be like. I think that it is a great test. I'm really curious. I love yeah. following stories about this company, Buffer, by the way, which is I mean, you can go on their website, you can see what everyone is making there. They don't just make it public for people in the company. Yeah. They make it public, they are transparent with everybody. Yeah. But Felix Salmon writes, because I've read that article on LinkedIn, and it sounds like my first question was, I, I wonder where he works. It doesn't sound like he's ever worked for, a, that he's a journalist, not that he's an employee. Because I just think there's some naivete in the way he kind of, you know, evaluates the way that, you know, companies work and how people get motivated. Probably the most transparent industry is government, right? You know, you work for, right. you work for the government. I'm not going to make that it's a single issue correlation, but there's... Very few industries that are less efficient in terms of productivity than government where compensation is clearly available to each other. But what Felix would argue there, what he does argue there, is that the, is that when you look at the public sector where salaries are public and you can find out what your, what your tax, where your taxpayer dollars are going, they also are very locked in on, on you have to get promoted to get more money. Once, yeah. you get, once you're level six, you make this. Once you're level five. And he says forget all that. That that kind of being promoted, only the only way you get more is by being promoted – is a disaster also. So you have to be – he looks at he, at sports uh, teams I, yeah. as, as an example where you know what the players are making. You know that the coaches make less. And his other argument is that if you – in a company that's transparent, the people who come in who are entry level know what it takes, can decide what path they want to go on mm -hmm. by looking at exactly who is getting rewarded, what kind of people are getting rewarded, what does that tell you about – what it takes. If you like who is getting rewarded, do you want to be like them? What, yeah, what I'm, sh I'm shaking my head because that makes it sound like the people chase the jobs based on where the highest compensation is. And who gets compensated most in most companies? It's the salespeople. It's the one who actually bring in the dollars. But not everybody has sales skills. But just because you happen to have transparency into the exact dollar that somebody makes that happens to be a salesperson should not motivate you to be a salesperson. It's going to end up in career failure, and it certainly is going to end up in a way where you think, I need to be justifying to my manager, I'm doing a better job, and I should be making what the guy next to me is making. I think it's fair to say that what everyone wants to do is to be a clothier. Yeah, and I think it is. And I think once you say that, and, and it's transparent, exactly. which is everybody wants to do it. Yes. Okay, let's, let's ask Michael that exact question. We will. Okay. For uh, Evan and Dan, we're going to wrap up here and we'll be right back with uh, Breaking the Mold. Grow your business by crafting a distinctive audio experience for your established and future clientele. Produced by The Hangar Studios. 
Hangar Studios professionally produces audio products including radio shows, podcasts, and audiobooks. Your business will take off with a professional audio production from The Hangar Studios. Be heard. Speak freely. Find us at thehangarstudios.com. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Hello, and welcome back to Breaking the Mold. Episode number eight, we are here for our interview section with Michael Andrews. As we mentioned, Michael is going to provide some insight into an industry that we have not covered yet here, Dan, on Breaking the Mold. That's right. We've done publishing. We've done editing. We've done not-for-profits. Books. Uh, books. But that's publishing, I yeah, guess. That's, yeah, that's usually those are the same, yeah, right. just because I, I think of books as needing to be published. Also, bound publications with text <laughs> on them. We've done that. <laughs> that business. <laughs> yes, but what we have not done, tailoring. That's right. Custom clothier. Not until today. So we are here to break the mold in breaking in <laughs> a new industry. Michael Andrew. Thank you for attending here in the studio with us. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Okay. We're going to get right into it, but let me give a little bit of background on Michael. He is a, by his own admission, a recovering corporate attorney, former mergers and acquisition attorney here in New York, uh, white shoe firms, living the dream, lawyers, kind of, that's what all, all, all aspire to. And he left all that to start his own business. And the business is what we'll, we'll spend some time talking about. But just for, for even further background on Michael, he started actually as an engineer, as an undergrad, switched over to get his JD MBA at Northwestern and uh, went into the law field. And then after seven years, started the firm Michael Andrews Bespoke, a destination for the men who want to look good, feel good, and uh, it's not just been uh, an inside scoop. There's been lots of uh, publications that have also said uh, great things about Michael, including he was on the Best of New York uh, magazine uh, list, Time Out, Bloomberg, AM New York, Marriott Magazine, any publication you pick up, you're in it. So, Michael, thanks for coming. Again, my pleasure. Okay. Let's go back to kind of early days. You're a dapper guy. It's it's sad that the listeners here can't see. Have you always been that way? I have. I've always loved clothes. I think it actually goes back to uh, my my parents did not like clothes. I uh, got dressed out of the Sears outlet store from the Husky section uh, most of my life. And Dan, so, uh, fellow Dan, Husky, Dan, you were there, <laughs> fellow Wildcat, and fellow Husky. Yeah, so, much <laughs> so the uh, you know the second I I had two nickels to rub together in a car to go do my own shopping, uh, I I really embraced it and uh, was best dressed in high school for whatever that's worth, uh-huh. but. Um, have have really always enjoyed clothes because it's a great way to uh, kind of express who you are. Uh, and then you know, as an attorney, I worked at one of the very few firms left in New York that was full business dress all the time. So I had to wear a suit and tie to work. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta, went to undergrad at Georgia Tech and then as Evan said. Is, it, is that a Southern thing? Is, is there a, a, a Southern piece of that? A, a little bit. Uh, I worked at an Atlanta-based law firm and so not coincidentally, I think you're right. They do tend to be more formal in their approach. So mm-hmm. suit and tie was still the, the norm there. Well, it's not really the norm at most places in New York. And did you become an attorney because you had a passion for that? Did you know in the background? Would you walk us through the path for 
what you were doing and how you, in the back of your head, were thinking about, I'm going to go do something else? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because if you look at your areas of sort of, you know, investment into education, you've got engineering, law, you took obviously classes in, in fashion, but it doesn't really match up. Like there's a lot of things that seem to kind of only exist in silos. Um, it's interesting. I'm incredibly fortunate in that uh, you're right. I have people, I hear that all the time. I have an engineering undergrad uh, I have an MBA. I have a law degree. Right. And I also am fortunate that I have the only job in the world that actually lets me put those together. Uh, I own a manufacturing facility. So I was an industrial engineer undergrad. So all of the the manufacturing aspect of, of industrial engineering quality control I use on a daily basis. Uh, when you own your own business, obviously sales, marketing, and all the things that you learn in your MBA program are incredibly valuable. And I don't know how non-lawyers start businesses because it is so difficult, all the HR issues, taxing, uh, all the tax issues, government regulations, uh, you know, corporate filings is just would blow the minds of most people. I find it difficult. I still make mistakes and I did that for seven years. So hmm. uh, it really is beneficial being able to you know, negotiate comfortably uh, across from other folks. I'm also smart enough to know when to go hire good lawyers to, right. to do stuff sure. for me. <laughs> right, right, right. But you're making it sound like this was the plan all along. I check off these boxes, then I'm perfectly set up to uh, start a, a tailoring, you know, operation. Oh, yeah. You don't think people go to law school with the intention of starting clothing companies? <laughs> Although it's at least two of my competitors, Duncan Quinn and Dominica Vaca, are also both ex-lawyers. We'll do anything to get out of this business. Right. Wow. Uh, you know, people always ask me, like, do you miss being a lawyer? I'm like on the 1st and the 15th of every month. But, but <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, no. Um, I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and so it's not really surprising that I fell into this. My, my father was an attorney but he was a solo practitioner. Uh, my mother owns an interior design firm. My sister owns uh, a uh, decorating business. My brother-in-law owns a chain of pizza restaurants. My uncle has his own law firm. My grandfather owned a textile mill. It's, you know, no one in my family likes working for anybody else. Then was everything a means to an end? Working for the law firm was just to collect a paycheck? Well, no. I, I went to law school because I got tired of losing arguments to my father. Um, and I say that really only half kidding. Um, but it's one of those things I never really intended on practicing. Um, I graduated in 2000 at the time was start was running a tech startup as everybody in 2000 mm -hmm. was doing. Uh, it met the same end that most companies in 2000 did. So I was like, well, I'm going to fall back on the practice of law. I'll, I'll do it for six to 12 months as the economy recovers. Seven plus years later, I finally uh, let go of the golden handcuffs uh, to go do something that I really loved. First, describe uh, MAB, if you would. How big are you? How many clients? What kind of what kind of clothes are you creating? Uh, we just had our eight-year anniversary. Um, and if you're doing the math, there, there was some overlap uh, between prior career and current career. Get to that. We make luxury custom clothing uh, for men. We started this uh, with the goal of doing something that was more contemporary than most of what was on the market. Our average client is younger than that of most of our competitors. We've tried to make it much more approachable. Um, we're very relaxed places. is not sort of the Ivy Tower perception of going to see your, you know, your kind of snotty old tailor. Our tagline is, in fact, you know, we're not your father's custom tailor. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 
a huge bar uh, in the store that we bought out of an Irish pub up in Massachusetts. Um, when the first thing you do when you come in is we, you know, we get you a drink and we sit down and we get to know you. I mean, it really is about building a relationship. It's low pressure relationship based selling, uh, consultative selling. Our goal is to make our clients look the best that they possibly can. So they go tell their friends and then their friends come in. That, that's our marketing budget is, is making our oh, clients word of look mouth. good. Huh. Yeah. It feels like you missed a step, though. The bar is the current MAB. There was something before, and what was it like, <laughs> the process of getting from beginning to where you are now? Well, so it's, it's funny. I will, let, me, let me take one step back. So when we, when we first started, we had intended on uh, – this was – we started it as a business, and it was intended uh, to hire people who were kind of going to run it. And one thing I learned very quickly is you, you really can't hire people to start a business for you. When it's your baby – and you care very passionately about it and you you want to see it a certain way, you can't pay people to do that. So I ended up being far more involved in it than I had intended, uh, which is why there was overlap between being an attorney and having started this. The first year I was still at a big firm and we had full-time folks who were running it and I was kind of overseeing it. That wasn't working very well. We then opened our first uh, physical location because the first year we would actually go to people's homes and offices much like a, like a Tom James would have done. We opened that store and at that point I went in-house at Siemens, got a kind of a nine to six uh, corporate job. We then saw clients at night from seven to 10. I'd process orders from 10 to two in the morning, respond to emails, get up, do it again all day Saturday, see clients all day Saturday, all day Sunday. That year was probably 100 hours, it literally was, was 20 hour days seven days a week, 363 days that year. I would not have wished it on uh, mm. my worst enemy. I, I lost all my hair and it was, you know, that's that one I didn't get back. Then about two months before the financial crisis, I decided to go do this full time. And then the financial crisis hit and I went, oh, dear God, what have I done? But we actually had our probably our strongest growth year ever that year. Uh, there was in many ways, a flight to quality. And even though uh, a lot of businesses were suffering as folks were getting laid off, the guys who didn't get laid off wanted to look good to make sure they kept their jobs. And the guys who did get laid off, the first thing their career coaches said was, go get a new suit. You know, you want to look your best for your interviews. You want to feel confident going in. So uh, we, we did very well uh, through that, despite the fact that I was scared to death most of the time. Amazing. How, what, when you say we, how many people were we talking about? When when we started, um, I, uh, I had a... Two, two main business partners, uh, Andrew Wells and Jeff Buell, who have never been involved in the day-to-day -day of the business, but they were there from the inception and uh, the three of us have self-funded uh, the business to date. We had two other folks who were very involved in the kind of startup of the business. They were kind of the first two uh, employees who, who now aren't with us, still own small equity stakes that I think one day will still make them quite wealthy, but uh, they're uh, just not with us anymore. So if you, you think about those early days and you talk about them kind of with nostalgia in some ways, right? You you know, obviously it came with a lot of return from that. But you think back to what it was like as you were going through it, right? Where there was there was no guarantee that you'd be where you are now. There certainly was not. And that's what I was saying. So the, the year where I was literally working the the 20-hour days, you know, I'd leave work at 6 at Siemens and get down to the studio at 7. I needed a drink. So we put a bar in the shop for uh -huh. me, not really for the clients. Uh, that's now kind of taken on its the uh, the uh, kind of illogical extreme and with our, you know, what we've got now. But there there was absolutely no no guarantees. Uh, the first three years were really, really hard, as I was sharing with you uh, before we got started with this. It's a this is a business where a lot of people get into it because there there are not obvious barriers to entry to it. 
um, if you've got a tape measure and some fabric books and somebody to make some suits for you, you can go out and become a custom clothier. Lots of people jump into this business. What The hidden barrier to entry is the knowledge that it takes to actually deliver a good garment. It's far more technical and complicated than, than people would think. So you were explaining a little bit about how much goes into actually remaking the clothes in the first year. Right. One of the reasons folks sort of jump in and then jump right back out is they, they realize that it's hard to get it right the first time if you don't if you haven't done this before. And so I, as I was sharing with you, our, our first year, our cost of goods were actually higher than our revenue. Not our overall expenses, but our actual cost of goods because we remade so much of what we did. But it, that was a function of, one, for, we were fortunate because I was still practicing to have the resources to be able to do that. Uh, and then second was it was a commitment that we carry to this day to absolute client satisfaction. When we first started, the folks who trusted us uh, with, with their buying decisions were, were my, mostly my friends and coworkers. I had no choice but to make sure they were happy. Uh, so I really, in many ways, had a gun to my head. And uh, so we did what we needed to do. If it wasn't right, we remade it. And if it wasn't right the second time, we remade it again. Uh, you don't want to be in that place very long. And fortunately, we got up that learning curve uh, better and faster than most folks. And, you know, Today, uh, we, we make one of the, the finest garments in the, in the world. This might not be a fair statement, so correct me, but it, it feels like men are more aware of the perception that they don't want to be seen as though they're kind of looking for fashion and for style. That's a woman's thing to do, right? I don't really want to put extra effort into my own looks because I don't want to make it look like I'm trying too hard. You know, and I think that that's changed a little bit. But did you have to fight sort of some of these kind of grander effects of kind of men having to overcome their not, their interest in trying to get something from you that was a little, you know, high end and, you know, and fancy? Well, I think you're right. There certainly is a prevailing view that that is the case. Um, I went into this business with the idea that I thought that was wrong. The Brooks Brothers and the Jose Banks of the world deliver lowest common denominator garments. These are businesses that are run by old men who I think largely feel that guys don't want to stand out. They don't want to mm -hmm. necessarily look too good. And as a consumer, that wasn't me. I wanted something better than that. I wanted to look as, as good as I could and ideally you know, better than the guys around me. And so that was part of the impetus of starting this. We wanted something that was slimmer, more contemporary, better designed. And sure enough, I was right that there were a lot of folks out there that were unhappy with what was in the market. Uh, now, the the average guy has evolved. Uh, mm -hmm. our, our particularly in New York, our average client is far more sophisticated, uh, better dressed than they were when we started eight years ago. Um, consequently, we have a lot more competition in that sense because other people have mimicked what we did and kind of jumped on the bandwagon. Um, you know, Joseph or Brooks Brothers now has an extra slim fit. Uh, which is still bigger than our most generous cut, but you know it, it's they're at least they're they're, they're trying, um, and we certainly have seen sort of a rise in competition in that sense. With the rise of fast fashion and and, and retailers figuring out how to very quickly create on a mass scale well, looks you, that are new, how do you, I mean? I would think that would go right in after your business. Yes and no. You can't create quality. There's no, fast fashion and, and quality are not synonymous by by any stretch. Um, we're 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 slow fashion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it takes a while to make what we do. Um, our garments are made by hand. It takes about 40 hours of actual work into the garment. You know, typical turnaround time is a couple of months on a suit. Um, so if you're in a hurry, that that's not us. But one thing with men's suits, I mean, we still do principally do suits for guys going to work. Uh, we do sport coats and other more casual stuff. But for, for the most part, our clients are bankers and lawyers, 
who just want to look better. There are limits on that, right? I mean, you, you can't put all kinds of fancy trimmings and seams and all kinds of stuff that you would see on designer off-the-rack stuff because it's just not appropriate. You can't walk into a boardroom uh, and, and have epaulets on your on your suit. It just doesn't make it just doesn't make sense. I wish you had told me that a week ago. <laughs> such a bad meeting. Yeah, the epaulets, Dan, were the problem. <laughs> it was yeah. such a mistake. The yeah. captain's hat also <laughs> with the scrambled eggs on it. Mistake. <laughs> what about though? As companies, I mean, you talk about these these lawyers and bankers, but everyone is moving towards a more casual look. I think. Here, tell me if I'm wrong. It certainly seems that way. I work for an internet company, and if people, if someone is not wearing shorts, it's considered to be you know formal wear. I think that's actually a, a trend that started a long time ago. I mean, it, it's to the extent it's a trend, it, it really probably started 20 years ago. And there have been huge ebbs and flows in that uh, over the last, you know, the eight years that we've been in it, right? When we first started, there was the prediction that, that suits were dead. And then the recession hits and then everybody's wearing a suit again because they wanted to look good. Um, you know, the whole trend in California toward jeans and shorts and stuff, uh, you know, happened decades ago. At the same time, we've got you know, a dozen private equity clients in California who take their private jets out to New York to get sport coats and, and slacks mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, if I, we've got three or four clients in San Francisco who are just literally begging to bankroll us going out to San Francisco, where you would think there couldn't be a city that would, would be more antithetical to selling suits. Right. But it's still a city with millions and millions of people who need at least one good suit. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's really not very many people out there selling them. So uh, it would it could potentially be a good market for us. So let's talk about your view of entrepreneurialism. You, you are an entrepreneur. You're a successful entrepreneur. Could you apply the principles that you've learned along the way to any industry or does it only fit in as a tailor? Oh, there's no question. I, I think one of the reasons we are particularly good at what we do is because I approach this the same way I did uh, the practice of law. We're in the client service business. We don't refer to – we have clients, not customers. It's a relationship. And a lot of folks in my business don't understand that. They're, they're tailors. They're, they're in the business of making clothes and they happen to sell those clothes to people who wear them. But there's very little thought given to who their client is. Um, I think almost everybody I know has had some experience or another where they've either had something altered or they've bought something. They're like, oh, we'll have it to you next Wednesday. And you go in to pick it up on Wednesday. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not finished. I'll get it to you next Wednesday. And that happens over and over. Uh, we try very hard to uh, – under. We, our clients are busy people. They, they make a lot of money. And so we value their time. We try to set very realistic expectations. If you've we've given you a deadline, we will hit it no matter what it takes. Mm -hmm. uh, we will jump through hoops to – deliver the kind of product in the same way. If one of my clients is an attorney on Friday called up and said, I need a merger agreement turned by Monday, come hell or high water, we had a merger agreement on their desk at nine o'clock Monday morning. So if it's not your current business, what would it be that you would apply this lessons of client service to? Well, I mean, I think what we do transcends, we, we recruit actively out of the hospitality industry. We have found that uh, folks who have waited tables make better clothiers than guys who went to fashion school. Wow. Huh. Uh, actually, by a long way, guys who go to fashion school very much tend to want to be designers and they are very right-brained folks. Um, I need folks who are a little more left-brained because what we do is creative and we make beautiful things. But at the end of the day, we're in, we're in the client service business. So uh -huh. it's giving the client what the client wants, not what we feel like designing. Uh, and that transcends to almost anything, whether you're talking about being a banker, being a lawyer, uh, opening a restaurant, uh, running a hotel. Um, but what would you do? What would I do? Um, 
Boy, that's an awfully good question. I am so so deep in this. I'm one of the few people I know who uh, knows what they're going to do when they grow up. Um, Total blinders on. Love is only for MAB. I uh, well, it's not uh, not so much that. I love being an entrepreneur. If I was to sell Michael Andrews and do something, well, first of all, I'd take a few months off because I could use a vacation. <laughs> um, I would actually probably uh, move to China and stay in the apparel business, uh, probably build a new production facility over there and and run it and just work on the wholesale side of things. Really? That seems far removed from the client service business. That's uh, a... Just depends on who your client is. Um, If I had a nickel, again, for every time people in this business approach us, they know that we own our own production. Uh, They're like, would you make for us? Because it's the production is the Achilles heel in this business. Uh, there's a million people tripping over themselves to sell custom clothing. There are really only about a half a dozen places where you can go to buy it on the wholesale side to then resell it. And none of them are any good at it. So we, we sort of stand alone in many respects and, and folks are constantly asking us if we would make for them. So there'd be a huge business uh-huh. business there to do that. So have you thought about doing that? Um, we've thought about it. I mean, I think we have the secret sauce. And so our production facility is really optimized for what we do. And we uh, intend to scale our business. Uh, with, you know, with, we have this great asset. And so we're going to put that to work on our business. I don't really have that much interest in sharing that asset with, yeah. with my competitors. Uh, we might when folks approach us about that, we might look at potentially rolling them into the fold um, and, you know, converting other existing custom clothiers to the Michael Andrews uh, brand, but but probably are not going to be in the wholesale business. Just g- given some of the trends of, co- of manufacturing coming back on shore, could you ever see that production facility being done here? Uh, no, I, I don't, but for, for one very uh, obvious reason, uh, our workshop is in Shenzhen, and we're very honest with people. Mo- most people I know actually make in China, whether they tell you that or not. Um, it's the dirty secret in our business. Um, we're honest about it. I have an integrity problem uh, having come from, you know, believe it or not, most lawyers tend to be more honest than they're given credit for. It's because they know the consequences of not, yeah, yeah, not because they're honest. No, that's yeah, <laughs> that may be true. Um, so uh, we're in Shenzhen for one very real reason. Um, that's where the tailors are. Um, we pay what is effectively $12 a square foot for industrial space in Shenzhen, where the U.S. average is like closer to three. I could have rented space in the Bronx for less than we are paying wow. in rent in, in Shenzhen. Uh, the problem is there aren't tailors in the Bronx. Um, you know, we, we have a very hard time recruiting altera- good alterations tailors here. Um, and that's where the talent is. And there, you know, there are two suit factories left in, in New York uh, that if somebody wanted to get in the clothing business, they could use one of those two of them. Uh, but I would challenge them to find more than one or two people working in either of those factories who are native English speakers. Now, I don't say that in a, in a derogatory way, but the reality is there are not, you know, made in America does not mean made by Americans in, in like the sense that, that, that we would think of it. So I decided to uh, just let my tailors stay closer to home. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, the difference between us and some of our competitors is uh, even those that make in New York, they outsource to someone who happens to be in New York and we insource to our factory that just happens to be, you know, a 16 hour flight away. Right. It's an issue of where the talent is, not where, you know, cheapest uh, cheapest manufacturing can be no, done. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's uh, there's a reason why great cars come from Japan and Germany and uh, there's still beautiful suits made on Savile Row. It's not like we've cornered the market. Um, yeah. 
But, you know, that that's a case where, yes, you can still get beautiful stuff made in England, but it's four times more expensive. And those tailors are getting old. Right. Uh, you know, that's the other consideration is that uh, m most of the tailors uh, that are still doing this who are worth their salt here are in their 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. um, where over there, uh, our, our tailors make 30, 40,000 US a year, which over there is an astronomical amount of money. Um, and so it's a business where people want to get into it. Uh, you know, most of our tailors are in their, are in their 40s. Uh, their kids get into it. And so there's there are plenty of folks who are, are interested in being in the business. And we've got 20 to 30 years of, of, of good talent base, you know, left with our with our existing workers, which we wouldn't have here. Mm -hmm. So what is it? What do the next 10 years look like? Is it going to you stay in China? Does how does the business grow? What what's going to happen to you professionally, personally? Uh, boy, those are all all good questions. Uh, the business um, we clearly are scaled for growth. I mean, we've invested a lot of money in our production facility with the uh, the intent of of growing the business. Uh, exactly how we do that and what it looks like uh, probably to be determined. Next couple of stores may actually still be in New York. Uh, we think we're probably underserving guys uptown and downtown who who don't want to get to our our flagship uh, in Nolita. Um, we are in discussions with another company that will remain nameless about uh, possibly doing store in store in their showrooms around the country, mm -hmm. um, which would be a good opportunity for us to grow. Uh, like I mentioned, we may bring some other custom clothiers into the fold, which would be a great way to scale our, our, our brand around the country. Um, our, our Actually, our next store, almost without question, will be a store in store in Shenzhen. There is so much money uh, in Shenzhen. I mean, it's where your iPhone's made. It's the high tech capital right. of China. Um, and you, I see more Bentleys, Lamborghinis, Ferraris uh, running around over there than mm. than you do here. So we think there's a huge opportunity to cater to the domestic Chinese market. And people are always like, oh, what are you going to sell your suits for over there? I was like, more than we sell them for here. Hmm. Wow. How, how much time during the year are you in China? Well, I've been there the better part of the last nine months. Uh, I'm mostly back now. I, I was there overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of getting the our new workshop set up. We'd left a joint venture and moved into a, our own wholly owned facility. That's That took a lot of effort and time, so but it's, it's nice to be back home. Great. Well, I think, Michael, this is the time to tell you that the only reason you're really here is because Dan really has no sense of fashion. And <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a uh, fashion uh, emergency or, or uh, uh, no, a, um, uh, intervention. Intervention. A fashion, a fashion intervention. Fashion yes. intervention. Yeah. So um, thank, thank you very much for coming. You know, obviously <laughs> your story is you know, remarkably inspiring for all, all of us who uh, – see something that we wish we could be doing with our lives and want to actually do it instead of uh, working a uh, working job that uh, sounds pretty soulless. So you're a good role model for all of us and, and obviously a fashion role model for Danny. <laughs> Michael, thank you for being here. Great. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Thanks. And, and I appreciate you telling me that apparently I didn't know that muscle shirts were out. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. So, Dan, Michael, not exactly the type of typical corporate lawyer, risk-averse, 
uh, would rather just practice law, dig into the law, always counseling their clients to making sure that they look at both sides of the situation. Here's what could happen. That just doesn't, I don't feel like lawyers, even though he said there were two other people in fashion who actually came from the same path he did, it seems so the wrong way to for like your career path to go from lawyer to leaving to be an entrepreneur to work in fashion. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I think it's very interesting how we chase this dream. He did it in a lawyerly way, which was- Uh-huh, that's he, true. It was very um, conservative. He yep. kept his day job, did this after work, got another job in-house to be able to do this, to be able to have more time to focus on it. Yeah. He said he was very upfront with his employers that he was doing this. That came in pretty handy when the first year was a disaster. Yeah. But it is, I think, for people who are chasing their dreams and are in jobs that feel like you're billing you know, every six minutes and there is no time to think about Going after your dream, he proves that you actually can do that. And, yeah. and one way, typically, you know, the, the way that you hear about it now is quit your job, go and do it. You got to throw yourself all in. Don't be scared of failure. Failure is a good thing. You learn from failure. He was like, I'm not going to fail. Okay, I'm going to keep my day job and keep doing this. I think it's a totally different um, perspective than one you get from a lot of places today. Right. And I think that that's the role that failure places. I think that, that that's great that like in kind of the, you know, scope of, well, if I'm a, you know, venture capitalist that I need to check certain boxes. This is a little bit what we talked about with Shane, which is like you had to have failed before, kind of learn from your mistakes. But there's a reality, which is failure leaves you broke. Right. And failure leaves you without the ability to kind of go back to your old job. Yep. And I, I think maybe that works if you're, you know, you're just starting your career and the opportunity cost of leaving is so low. There's right? so little to lose. Yeah. Right? So you're making, you know, either forty to forty five thousand dollars or you're doing it from your college dorm room. Right. right. And you go back to college. Right. What's the difference between a 22 year old looking for a job and a 23 year old looking for a job? You spent a year, you failed. You're in the same position you were. Yeah. But in this case, um, <clears throat> I think that the 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 lesson that you can take away from it is that there are opportunities to do things that that are that are big. Yeah, but you just got to figure out a way to make them work within your current within your life. I just found interesting. Maybe and this is my own hang up, but of that, his passion was in men's fashion, like you know, of providing like really great, you know, making men look good. Right. I, that feels to me like an even bigger risk than just being an entrepreneur and starting an app. Well, it feels like I mean, when I think about when you talk about your dreams of being in the NBA. Yeah. And and of being, you know, only 4'8", and knowing that that's going to be difficult, but yet, you know, still on nights and weekends going after yeah. it. and I think that we can take from Michael is the full-on commitment that you take to get to your dreams. I had, remember that stretching thing that I had that you would pull, pull up yeah. and pull down? And, I, and I'm very happy at 4 foot 10 and a half now <laughs> that I wouldn't have been, you know, without that. <laughs> All right, so we are uh, wrapping up another episode here of Breaking the Mold. We will be back with you shortly with another great show. For Breaking the Mold, I'm Evan Roth. And I'm guest co-host Daniel Roth. Thank you for tuning in. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.